All right, let's look together in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. Now, let me mention something here. If you were at a play, we just got back from intermission. The first four chapters of, of Corinthians are Act 1, divisions in the church. Chapters 5 and 6 were the second act of, of the play, and that was the disorders that were in the church. They had incest, they had indictments, and they had immorality. And last week, Pastor John reminded us that our bodies are not our own. We're to glorify God. The rest of the book could be thought of in this respect. There are difficulties that were raised by the church. And what I mean by that is, look at chapter 7, verse 1. Paul says, now concerning the things about which you wrote. So in other words, Paul shared first what was on his mind, and now he wants to address what's on their mind. And so throughout the rest of the book, we're going to see him going back to that phrase, now concerning, now concerning. He's sort of saying, okay, let's have an open time of questions. But these questions had already come in, and now he's answering them. And one of the fun things about Bible study is as we're reading, the more you read it, the more you are absorbed in it and and studying and thinking, you start to realize that it makes so much more sense as you put yourself into that context and say, what was on their mind? What, What were they saying? And what was Paul trying to tell them? Not, what's this have for me? That's not where we start. What did it mean to them? And the Lord speaks to us. So the difficulties that were raised by the church had to do with marriage, we're going to start that today. And then in chapters 8 through 10, it was meat offered to idols. And then in chapters 11, all the way to chapter 14, it had to do with meeting together for worship. There, was, there were things that he wanted to talk about, head coverings and the Lord's Supper and the use of gifts like tongues. So there's some fun things coming up. But this morning, as we're looking at this passage, I want to suggest that This is not what some first think it is. This is not Paul's marriage manual, okay? This had a very specific occasion. If you are looking for a good book on marriage, we highly recommend a book called Marriage Matters. And those of you who might want to um, do a Bible study on it, a number of couples here have done Bible studies. We went through a Bible study on it, Marriage Matters. And that has a lot of the broader things that, that relate to marriage here. So this chapter is not about Paul's philosophy of marriage. He's, he's addressing a very specific issue here. And the issue is, is in many ways about marriage, but it's broader than that. It's about changing your status. Now you say, well, what do you mean by changing your status? Like, you mean back then on Facebook you could change your status from from single to married, back to single. But, but yet, in essence, that, that sort of fuels our culture. Changing your status is far bigger than just your marital status. It's your social status. I mean, it doesn't take a rocket scientist to go, which direction did the Beverly Hillbillies go? They're moving to Beverly. Where did George Jefferson go? He's moving on up to the east side. We're in a, in a culture where the idea is, you know, this is a big deal to improve your status, you know, to take it to the next level. We didn't have much for, for our kids, but boy, I'm going uh, to see that my son is a doctor and he's, you know, let's improve our status. And, and I think that's the biggest thing that Paul's addressing here. There was a preoccupation with a status change. And what he's going to drive home in this whole chapter, which we'll look at for the next two weeks, is why? A status change is not going to bring about what you're expecting. Why do we all want a a different status? 
I think two reasons. Number one, because we're sinners, we're born with this, this illness called coveting. We are deceived into thinking that if only I had what I don't have, then I'll be happy. That's coveting. It's a discontentment with our circumstances. And this isn't a new thing. When we talk about the greener grass, why are one of the Ten Commandments, don't covet your neighbor's wife or his house? Because there's something about us that goes, if only I had that job or that wife or this money or that vacation or that car, then I'll be happy. The very, the very essence of what is a mall? It's a covet factory. You got some money in your pocket and we go there. Well, what are you going there for? I don't know yet, but when I get there, I'll find out. The whole essence of marketing and advertising is to convince us that, that we're going to be happy when we get this product. We deserve it. And so what we're going to learn from Scripture is don't buy into that lie that a change in status is going to bring you happiness. And actually, if anything, perhaps one of the greatest lies that people believe is that a change in my marital status will make me happy. But some wise pundit observed that one time and he said, you know, I think marriage is like flies on a screen. He said the ones on the outside are dying to get in. But what do flies do when they're on the inside? They're trying to get out. And so Paul's addressing a greater issue here than just, let me give you some instructions on marriage. What it seems like he's, he's correcting here is this misunderstanding that changing your marital status is going to suddenly lead to your happiness. And he's going to beat that down and say, that's not a big deal. If you're unmarried, you know, stay in your lane if you can. If you're married, stay in your marriage if you can. It's not going to matter to God, nor is it going to make you happy. So this morning we're going to look at the first 24 verses. And what Paul's going to teach us in this section is that our focus should not be on a change of status, but on cheerful service to God. Now, interestingly, think back to where Pastor John landed last week. He said, you've been bought with a price, therefore glorify God. You're not your own, okay? And so we go, all right, let's go out there and glorify God. Well, what does that look like? How do I glorify God? What do you mean I'm not my own? And so Paul's going to start with this very practical instruction on how to glorify God in your body First of all, in your marriage. So what I'd like us to look at, first of all, is verses 1 through 6, where Paul's going to remind the Corinthians that a marital status, a married status, if you're married, then marriage calls for intimacy. Okay? So Paul's not going, oh, let me give a marriage book about intimacy. In fact, interestingly, many theologians think that the reason he even talks about intimacy here is that some of the Corinthians had what, i use a big phrase, over-realized eschatology. They thought they had already arrived. And Paul had hinted at that in 1 Corinthians 4. He goes, wow, you're already kings. You've already arrived. Here we are, scumbags, but you are arrived. So, so what it looks like, now this is going to sound weird, is that some of them felt that they were so spiritual that they had reached a state where sex would be, well, well, that's mundane. I, I don't need that anymore. I don't want that anymore. I just am already a glorified king. And Paul's like, what are you talking about? So in essence, what he's going to tell us here, and this is important, that a married status calls for intimacy. 
And I want to be very careful here as we look at this passage, but let's look at verses 1 through 6, and I want to make some comments. We're going to learn that he's, he's going to tell us here that intimacy itself is a blessing of marriage, and it should only be cautiously interrupted. And then he tells us why. So, so let's look. He says, now concerning the things about which you wrote, it is good for a man not to touch a woman. Now, Pastor John introduced us last week to the idea that some of these phrases may not be what Paul believes. He may be quoting what they believe. And that's quite possible here. He, this very well could be a Corinthian slogan. He goes, remember how you wrote it's good for a man not to touch a woman. And that's quite possible here. It, it may not be that Paul's saying, you want to hear my opinion? It's good for a man not to touch a woman. Now, this phrase, not to touch a woman, was an idiom, okay, a figure of speech. Like when I say, my dog kicked a bucket. We all know that that doesn't mean literal, okay? So it doesn't mean, oh, don't ever touch a girl. They have cooties. I mean, we get over that by the time you're in third grade. But this is an idiom for intercourse. And Paul says, it's good for a man not to have sex. Now, I have a hard time thinking that that's what the Bible teaches, right? Does the Bible teach that after God created sex within marriage to be enjoyed, that he say, but you know, it's, it's actually really better if you don't do that, if you just stay away from that. So it probably was, was their view of intimacy. So Paul says, because of immoralities, let each man have his own wife and let each woman have her own husband. Now, what do you mean? Ha like, what are they, property? Do you just possess them? But, but, you know, subtly, we do sort of believe that, right? Because when, when we meet a couple, you go, does he belong to you? That's just another way of saying, are you guys married? Does he belong to you? Right? So what does that mean? He's showing that there's this mutual ownership of one another. He says, let the husband fulfill his duty to his wife, and likewise the wife also to her husband. The wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. And likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Now, that's really profound, because think about what he just said in the last chapter. Where we live in a culture, and back then, it's my body, and I could do whatever I want with it. Paul goes, if you're a Christian, it's not your body. It's God's. You're bought with a price. But now he's going to take it to another level. He goes, if you're a Christian and you're married, not only is it not your body because God bought it, it's not your body because, in essence, it also belongs to your spouse. Now, this is actually part of a, a very intense discussion that unbelievers have. And, and the, when, when we're rolling in the streets with unsaved people, you know what they're saying? Hey, things are only wrong if they hurt others. So yeah, adultery's wrong because it hurts a woman or it hurts her husband. But sleeping together, that's not wrong because after all, it's a mutual consent. It's not hurting anybody. So I want you to be able to answer that because when people say, why is that wrong if two men want to get married or if a couple wants to live together? It doesn't hurt anybody if they agree. C.S. Lewis had a great illustration of this. He said, okay, so what you're saying is let's imagine that our bodies are all boats and each one of us has a boat and we're in a bay and the one rule is 
Don't bang anybody else's boat and crash, right? Don't hit anybody else. Don't damage them without their consent. And that's morality. But what you do with your boat, you could do whatever you want. You know, some people have barbecues on a boat, but you don't want to have a barbecue on the floor of the boat. It's not going to, not going to end well, right? You're going to burn your boat up. So, so people look at their own body as, hey, it's my boat, and I could do what I want with it. Well, that in itself is, is faulty thinking because it's not your boat. Even if you're not a Christian, you didn't build your boat. You didn't create yourself. The very nature of being a creature means that there is a divine creator and he has a right to hold me accountable with that boat. So in essence, I might have the, the wheel of the ship, but I got to answer to the owner of the boat. And so in many ways, it's, it's a double-edged sword to, to, to recognize that when Paul says, you're not your own, you're bought with a price to a Christian, but what he doesn't mean by that, but if you're not saved, you are your own and you can do whatever you want because God doesn't care. So Paul's going to take this idea that, yeah, yeah, I know you think your body's your own, but let me, let me share with you one of the ways that we glorify God with our body, and that's to recognize that intimacy is a blessing and should only be cautiously interrupted. Now, I want to tread very, very carefully here because there are so many issues when it comes to sexual intimacy that need to be pondered here. And, and certainly, we could spend a whole sermon on this subject. But I want to at least paint some broad strokes here. That God created sex for pleasure and enjoyment, not just for procreation. It wasn't, oh, they got to do the nasty because we have to have kids. And if, if we were all in our glorified state where we didn't have a sin nature, we wouldn't have problems with sex. The Holy Spirit has not left the church right now because they're talking about sex. In fact, what God wants us to do is stop learning from the locker room how to view sex, but to learn from the living Bible how to view sex. So we all come into a marriage relationship with our own issues. Many of us have baggage from our past. We don't enter into a marital relationship I, I, this is day one on planet Earth. So there, there are issues of abuse. There are issues of, of misunderstandings. And part of what we do in premarital counseling is there are some really good books that are very detailed on sex. One of the top three reasons for divorce in American culture, money, communication, and sexual issues. So this passage, we want to read it carefully. Look at verse 5. When Paul says, stop depriving one another, except by agreement for a time. Now, flashback. When I was 18 years old and I was sitting in a Bible class in Cairn, my professor said this. He goes, I'm, I'm counseling a missionary couple, and the guy's an animal. He wants to have sex every single day. And in my naivety as an 18-year-old, in total sincere innocence, I raised my hand and I said, what's wrong with that? Why does that make him an animal, right? I was, and, and literally, my peers looked at me with, with scoffing like, what is wrong with you? And I'm like, wait, I, I, am I missing something? Because I didn't understand that 
And a lot of people think that, that, that you know, when you get married, that, you know, that's the majority of what marriage is about. It took me a while to realize there's 168 hours in a week. Number one, even if you did have sex every day, you still got a lot of hours left to, f to fill the, the time with. It can't just be about sex. In addition to the fact that we get tired, we get older, we get mad at one another. In fact, I read great advice. My wife and I, this is hysterical. This couple was married 60 years and they were asked, how did you stay together? What's your secret? It was simple. Don't hate each other on the same day. <laughs> yes. I shared that with my wife. I said, the thing is, I said, it's not fair because you get like six of those days. I only get one, right? Come on, let's have three and four, you know? But, but the point would be, there are times when, when couples hate each other. So, so for you young people, maybe like I was, you're like, what do you mean? Who would, who would say no to that, right? But, but think back to the, to the proverbial movies. Even when they tried to be much more discreet on Ozzie and Harriet when, when she would say, not tonight, dear, I have a headache, right? Okay? But then if tomorrow she says, not, not tonight either, dear, I have a headache. At some point you're going, how many headaches are you going to have here? Is that really the issue? So in the context here, what, what commentators think was happening is that some people, particularly women, were, were reaching a point of being so spiritual in their mind that we, we're not doing that anymore. Like, that's just earthly. I've arrived. And, and, and I've often thought, I hope my wife never becomes that spiritual, right? And you don't want your spouse, I hope, to be that spiritual. It's a, it's a misunderstanding that Paul's trying to correct. So in essence, so I get this, that there are times, even something as simple as pregnancy, I remember watching Kelly Ripa saying, what's wrong with men? My husband, when I was pregnant, asked the doctor, when can we have intimacy again after the baby's born? And, and the doctor said, three months. And he pulls out a calendar and he circles the day. And she goes, what's wrong with them? And, and there are sort of rude and crude ways that men make this too big of a deal. Not me. Oh, wait, my wife's here. Well, sometimes I do too, right? Where, where we need to understand the bigger picture here, okay? But there's a sense of mutual servanthood. There's a sense in which even if I'm not maybe as interested as in my spouse, that it, that it is not right to cut off your spouse from intimacy. And if there are reasons why you're doing that, then let's get them out into the light and talk to someone so we can work through them. Now, as a side note, Paul makes a concession. He goes, now I will concede one time that it's okay to do that. He said, if it's by agreement in order that you devote yourselves to prayer. And I'm thinking to myself, you know, if, 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 if my wife said to me, hey, Tom, you going to be home early tonight? I don't see how prayer would be a problem with that. I'd be like, yeah, but I'm going to pray for a few moments, so I'll see you later tonight. So what does this tell you about their prayer life? Like there were times where these people would set themselves apart for days, right? This isn't. You know, I'm going to pray for a little bit now. I'll see you later tonight. Except for the purpose of prayer. It sort of, doesn't it kind of go, huh, maybe I'm a spiritual pygmy when it comes to prayer. Maybe American culture prayer is not biblical prayer where there's a set apartness, a devoted time. And so it, it challenges us to push deeper into to spending time with the Lord.
and to have these more lengthy times, not all the time, but at times. So, so intimacy is a blessing, and Paul says it should be cautiously interrupted. Okay, well, why? He, he tells us why. He says the reason it should be cautiously interrupted is because withholding intimacy can lead to dangerous burdens. Look at, look at five again. He says, stop depriving one another and then come together again. Why? Lest Satan tempt you because of your lack of self-control. I heard somebody say it this way, a preacher said, why would your spouse want to go after a Volkswagen if you're providing a Cadillac at home? And, and in essence, you go, so are men just uncontrollable animals, right? I remember this was a very critical time. There was a time when some of our Marines were betraying secrets to Russia and the way that the Russians were getting these secrets is they were using beautiful women as spies to tempt these Marines. And when these Marines were caught and court-martialed, there were people who were saying, well, come on. I mean, they are just warm-blooded males. You know, after all, they need this. And I remember Chuck Colson saying, wait a minute. What are you talking about? They're not dogs in heat. They're human beings in the image of God. To which, if this was the case, we'd say, oh, well, they, they can't. What are you going to do when your wife's pregnant? What are you going to do when you're on a vacation? Or what are you going to do when you're on a business trip and there's nobody around? So it's not that we're, we're animals that have no self-control. In fact, that's part of what it means to be a Christian, is the Spirit of God living in me, right, is teaching me self-control. So sometimes people get all excited about, the Lord used me to witness to somebody and do a miracle. And I'm like, you know what a miracle is? That you're sexually pure in your heart. You're not on porn. You're not cheating on your wife. You're keeping your clothes on in the appropriate way. That's a miracle of God. Amen? That's a wonderful work of the Spirit. God's teaching us self-control. But the point he's saying here is, why would you want to jeopardize your spouse and put them in a place of temptation? What a burden are you putting on your spouse by saying, no, honey, no, honey, no, honey, no, honey. Eventually, Satan loves to come along. And I wanna, uh, I, I, I'm wondering if Satan isn't already ravaging some of you through temptation to porn and the Internet. And if you're, if you're stuck in that world, right, bring it in the light. Talk to someone. You're not alone. But it will destroy you. And pray for us, especially our leadership, that we will not fall into those sins because they're dangerous and they're dark and Satan's powerful. So all that to say this, it happens. I discipled a couple in Texas. When we moved up here, the lady called me devastated in tears. She said, my husband cheated on me. <laughs> I said, you're kidding me. No, these were our dear friends. So I called him. I said, is this true, brother? Did you cheat on your wife? And he says, yes, I did. It was only once, and I'm so sorry. Why did you do it? He says, we haven't had intimacy for two years. I said, wait, what? Yes, my wife has been depriving me for two years. Why? I don't know. Third call. Hey, I just talked to your husband, and I'm not making light of what he did, 
but he told me that you haven't had intimacy for two years. Help me understand what's going on. She begins to sob. She says, my grandfather used to abuse me. And I told my mother, and she never did anything about it. And so I hate intimacy. And, and what a heartbreak, right? But I said this. I said, did you ever tell your husband that? And she said, no. So consequently, unbeknownst to her, by depriving him because of her own personal pain, which we sympathize with, she also was putting him in a place of temptation. Now, does that mean, well, it's okay that he did? Of course not. But perhaps this could have been avoided if understanding this passage, that lady could have come to someone and gotten some help. See, that's the beauty of the gospel. There are no Humpty Dumpties with Jesus. No matter what happened to you in your past, the king's men might not be able to put you together again, but I can tell you from my own soul, Jesus could put you together again. Does anybody else believe that? Like, I get it. You can say, I'm dysfunctional. I've got baggage. I've got a past. Get in line. We all do, right? Some more severe than others, and God be merciful to those of you who were abused and are hurting. But there's hope in the gospel. But if you hide it, I, I can imagine why she didn't share this with her husband. It's painful. It's embarrassing. It's a dark secret. I don't want to go there. But the problem is, the answer isn't to suppress it. The answer is, you don't have to stand up in church, but, but, but bring it into the light and let the people of God and the Spirit of God and the Word of God bring healing. Amen? This is hopeful, not hopeless. So, Paul, Paul makes a point here. He's not giving his, his lessons on marriage. He's just going, look, some of you want to get out of marriage, and he's going to talk about that, and he goes, that's not a good idea. Some of you want to get out of your sexual obligations. That's not a good idea. You're not your own. You belong to God, and you belong to your spouse. So that's number one. Now, the second point that he wants to make here is that a marriage status calls for, for mutual intimacy, but a single status, ready for this, it's good, but it's not for everybody, Right? Being single is good. There are advantages to that. But it's not for everybody. And we need to be sensitive to that. There are some people who are single and they don't want to be. There are some people that are single and they want to be. And it annoys, it annoys them when they're 30 years old to say, are you married? No. Oh, you need to meet my, my nephew. You know, in some ways we have to be sensitive to go, did you hear them say, I'm single and I don't want to be, right? And then when they go, well, show me a picture of your nephew. You go, he's a really nice fella. No, but I want to see a picture of him. You'll love his personality. Okay, something's not fitting here, right? So let's remember this, that singleness is a good thing. It has many benefits. Paul's going to later say, man, it's great because you can devote yourself undistractedly to the Lord. But it's not for everyone. So let's read verses Six through nine. He says, I say this by way of concession. Now, what this is, is probably about the, the interruption of intimacy, not of command. But he said, I wish that all men were even as I myself am. Now, what he means here is single. And there's lots of discussion about whether Paul was ever married. If he was a Pharisee, Pharisees had to be married. Therefore, he's married. So either he's divorced or, or his wife died. And if God wanted us to know that, he would have told us. But we do know this. Paul was single. And he goes, I wish you all were single. Well, obviously, that's a preposterous absurdity if he meant that literally because we'd be the last generation on planet Earth, right? 
In fact, here's something to mark down. If your parents never have children, neither will you. So Paul's not saying, I really do want all of humanity to be single. But he says, each man has his own gift from God, one in this manner and another in that. So the first thing that we might want to think about is singleness is preferable, but, but, but here's, the, here's the, the kicker, if your gift makes it tolerable. He says it is good to be single, but you need to have a gift in that realm. So he says, I wish you all were single, but each man has his own gift from God, one in this manner and another in that. And if you have the gift of singleness and celibacy, the whole desire for intimacy is, is not preoccupying you. You're fine being single. You're happy. You're content. I know I always laugh when I'm teaching college students and I'm teaching spiritual gifts and I come to this gift and they all with frightened faces, I might as well read their mind, please tell me I don't have this. Please tell me I don't have this gift. How do I know whether I have this gift? I go, if you're asking, you don't, okay? If you do, you'll be content with it, okay? However, let's bear in mind that there are some people, my wife and I have a godly friend, and this person is single, and they're in their 50s, and they don't want to be single. But in their surrendered obedience to God, they don't get bitter at God because he hasn't provided someone. So Paul says, yeah, there's benefits to being single. And it's tolerable if you have that gift. But at the same time, he's going to say, singleness is preferable, but it's not preferable if it seems intolerable. So what does he mean by that? He says, I say to the unmarried and to the widows that it's good for them to remain as I am. In other words, yeah, it is. It's, it's good. It's, it's preferable in some ways. But, but if they don't have self-control, let them marry, for it's better to marry than to burn with sexual passions and, and, and to, to, to probably, as Paul suggested, or as some commentary suggests, maybe one of the reasons that some of the people were going up to prostitutes is because their spouses were not ministering to them or that they, they thought, yeah, I want to have the privileges of being single when in fact that wasn't good for them. Now, that doesn't mean go off and get married tomorrow. Go online, find somebody, go get married tomorrow. Fools rush in. And interestingly, when Paul says to the unmarried, it's an unusual word here. And so it's quite possible that the first half of this chapter, Paul's writing to those who either are married or were married. And he's saying, here's what I think. Later in this chapter, next week, he's going to talk to those who want to get married. I can see that in a moment. All I have to do is listen to a girl pray. If she doesn't want to get married, if she's single, she says, amen. If she's wanting to get married, her prayer ends with, amen. And I know. I can see it. <laughs> Sprinkle that in. All right. Now, the next thing Paul's going to tell us is, so, so think of the big thing. If you're in a married status, you know, Intimacy. If you're in a single status, that's great. It's, it's good, but it's not for everyone. Third thing now, in verses 10 through 16, he's going to come back to married people. He says, a married status is designed to be permanent. Let that sink in for a moment. If you get married, it's God's desire and design that it's permanent. That's what Jesus said. This is how God made it from the beginning 
right? God has many reasons why marriage is designed to be permanent. It's, a, it's an imagery of Christ and his church. It's a glory to God. It's for the protection of the children. It's for procreation. It's a means by which society is orderly and civilized. And this is one of the reasons why our society is crumbling because there are so many people who are having children who are either unmarried or who are remarried seven times and they got kids all over the place and it's just, it's just tumbling like dominoes. So, so let's, let's look at this. He says in verse 10, but to the married I give instructions, not I but the Lord. Now what Paul's going to do is he's going to toggle back and forth in this chapter. Sometimes he's going to say, this is what Jesus says, so there's no debate. Sometimes he'll say, this is my opinion, okay? Clearly, his opinions are secondary. Like at the end of the chapter, he says, if you're a widow, he says, if, if you're a young widow, I want you to get married. But if you're an older widow, well, my opinion, I think you would be happy if you stayed single. But he says, that's not God's command. But he says, this is the Lord's command. If you're married, the wife should not leave her husband. Now, he's not picking on women because it would be just as true to say, if you're, if you're married, the husband shouldn't leave his wife. It's not God's design for marriages to end in divorce. So what I want to suggest here is, as we think about this, and this is critical, divorce that is not biblical is not permissible. Let me say that again. Divorce that is not biblical is not permissible. If if someone ends up in a divorce, the scriptures say that Moses permitted it. Because they're like, hey, you know, Jesus, can we get divorced? He goes, listen, why did Moses love her? Moses permitted it. So God does permit it. But it's not just for any random reason, right? You just want to trade in your wife for a younger model. Or we fight all the time, so I think it would be better for the kids. Now that we're divorced, we get along great. I mean, please. So... So when Paul says in verse 10, a wife should not leave her husband, he's saying divorce is sin. God hates divorce unless it's biblically permissible. Now, I want to add this, that if you are divorced and it was an unbiblical divorce, you are not a second-class piece of trash that God hates and you have to wear the scarlet D around you for the rest of your life, and God can't renew you, he can't restore you, he can't forgive you. So, some of you are saying, well, what do you mean by a divorce that's biblical? Now, different people have different views on this. In Matthew 19, Jesus said this. He said, he that divorces his wife except for immorality commits adultery. So I think it would be, in my judgment, safe to say this, that if one of the, the two married partners violates the sacred covenant that you made in marriage to keep yourself sexually unto your spouse, if you commit adultery against your spouse, it is permissible for them to divorce you. But I wouldn't even say it's, it's necessary, Right? There have been many wondrous stories of the miraculous grace of God where, where someone was unfaithful, but God brought about it a miraculous healing, okay? But I think Jesus does permit divorce 
on the basis of unfaithfulness by the partner. Now, in a moment, it looks like the second permissive reason would be if your unbelieving spouse departs. Where it gets very difficult is, are there any other permissible grounds for divorce? In other words, what about abuse? And the Bible is, is not 100% black and white on that. I wish it was. And when you hear people say, well, if you just look at it in the Greek, please. There are lots of people who can read the Greek. But it doesn't mean that it's all black and white. But, but what I want to do is say, we have to approach this with some level of caution. And the first thing I want you to note here is that Paul even concedes the possibility and perhaps even the necessity of a, of a time of separation. Look what he says here. He says, in essence, separation should always be for the purpose of reconciliation. So let's look. He says, I don't want you to get divorced, but if, if, a, if, a, if a spouse does leave, now he's using she, but it would just as much he, let her remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband. Now, again, in very practical terms, there are times where I have even counseled a person to separate from their spouse for a time. But the goal wasn't, this is just to kind of ease us into a divorce. The goal was to take such a severe shot across the bow that the other person would finally, hopefully, come to their senses and say, hey, this is serious. So there are times where separation, especially if there's physical abuse, absolutely necessary, right? But he says, if you do separate, and particularly I think here meaning permanently, he goes, remain unmarried. See, there are so many people that go, oh, I can't get along with my spouse. Oh, we have some, we just, it's not going to end. Oh, we can't make it. And the day they sign the papers, they're already they're dating somebody else. And you go, wait a minute. Someone's, seems to me that prior to the divorce, you already were going down that road of remarriage. You already had the person picked out. And so another difficult issue in the scriptures is, when is remarriage permissible? Jesus said, he that marries a divorced person commits adultery. And that's a little frightening. But my opinion is divorcing someone who has been divorced unbiblically. So, for example, if a young lady at the age of 19, her loser husband cheats on her, leaves her, runs off with a secretary and gets married, and here she is, 19 years old, married one year and, 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 and expecting a baby, my personal opinion is God is saying, oh, it stinks to be you, but you have to stay single, okay? But if someone says, you know what? My husband or my wife, I don't like them anymore. They're a jerk. We fight all the time. I'm not. I'm done. And then, oh, hey, you want to get married? I would caution you in that respect. And again, this, this requires further conversations of which Pastor John will be happy to have with you. Um, <laughs> I would, but I'm so busy. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. That's what we're here for, elders, pastors, so we're not putting this on any one person. But we want to be true to the word of God. So, Paul says, 
a divorce that is not biblical is not permissible. A separation, he says, should aim towards reconciliation. And I realize there's all kinds of caveats here. Paul goes, if you divorce, be reconciled. And you're like, okay, well, what if the person I divorce gets remarried? How can I even pursue reconciliation with them? They're already remarried. Okay, so it's not like, okay, well, we all got all our ducks in a row. It's all tidy and neat and clean. The third thing he's going to say here is, even if you are unequally yoked to someone, your marriage should still be permanent. So again, you, you see the tenet that he keeps saying, stay in your marriage. Fulfill your duties in your marriage. Serve in your marriage. And sometimes it drives me crazy when people go, God doesn't want me to be unhappy in my marriage. And I go, would you please show me where the Bible says that? The Bible doesn't say God never wants you to be unhappy in your marriage. In fact, I would go so far as to say sometimes God asks some believers to endure their marriage even though they don't enjoy their marriage. What? If I'm not happy, I'm out. And I go, mm, not exactly. When you stood before God, you said, I solemnly swear in good times and in good. No, good times and in bad. And I want to be very sympathetic to those of you who are in a difficult marriage. And of course you think it's all her fault or all his fault. But there are times when God asks believers to suffer. And he says, I will give you the grace that you need. I will provide for you. I will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you're able. So clearly here what we have now is believers who are going, yeah, well, my spouse isn't saved. You certainly don't want me to stay married to them. They don't even want to pray. I can't even have a Bible study in my house. And, and God's going, no, no, I'll say it again. Even unequal marriages should be permanent. Because they have saving potential. This is a great passage. Look at this. Paul says, to the rest, I say not the Lord. So here he's going to go. Let me give you my opinion. He says, if a brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, let him not send her away. So, so let, let's, let's stop and go, wait, how could someone be married to an unbeliever? Well, as far as I know, there could only be two ways, Right? You both were not believers when you got married, and one of you became a believer. Or you were a believer, and I'm not going to stutter, and I'm going to say this gently, but if you married an unbeliever, you sinned. Okay? So let's just get that on the table. It is, it is a sin for a Christian to marry an unbeliever. We're going to read later in this chapter, you're free to marry whoever you wish, only in the Lord. Right? And then, of course, you could say, well, what about the person who married the person who said they were a believer, but now it becomes evident that they're not? Well, yeah, that kind of fits into the sort of the, the, you go, well, there's only two things. And I'm like, well, two and a half. But the point would be, okay, regardless of how you got into a marriage with an unbeliever, if you're a Christian, Paul goes, I want you to stay with them. Why? Because it has saving potential. So he says, if your unbelieving spouse consents to live with you, don't send her away. And believe me, I've been around the block enough to see Christians go, well, I didn't send her away, but read between the lines. I'm going to make her life so difficult that she wants to leave. And I go, don't even try that. If you're a Christian, don't try to get your unsafe spouse to leave you. Verse 13, if a woman has an unbelieving has husband and he consents to live with her, let her not send her away. And you're going, Paul, are you crazy? They can't even pray together. I mean, I know people who their spouse mocks the gospel in front of the children and how painful that is for the other spouse to try to be raising them for the Lord. 
And I think to myself, pity that poor soul who mocks the gospel in front of his children. Because Jesus already talked about that. He said, it would be better for you to have a big rock tied around your neck and thrown into the sea. But at the same time, Paul says, the reason I want you to stay there is because it has saving potential. What does he mean by that? He says in verse 14, for the unbelieving husband is sanctified through his wife, and the unbelieving wife is sanctified through her believing husband. For otherwise your children are unclean, but now they're holy. Gee, I'd love to explain that verse, but we're sort of out of time, so let's go on to the next one. That's, what? What does that mean? So, so, so let me explain what I think it means. So when, when Paul says, if you're a believer, your spouse is sanctified. The Greek word there means set apart. It means holy. What? If I'm saved, does that mean my spouse gets a get-out-of-hell-free card? Do my kids automatically go to hell? Of course not. We know the Bible doesn't teach that. So the word itself means set apart, okay? Clearly, as we compare Scripture with Scripture, we know that this doesn't mean... If your spouse isn't a Christian, they go to heaven because you are. Your kids go to heaven because you are. But I think what he's saying is there's a saving potential. There's a blessing upon them. They have a greater opportunity to come to Christ. So one time came to my mind, maybe an analogy would be something like this. Old Potiphar, right? Potiphar hired a young man to work for him. His name was Joe, right? Remember the story of Joseph? Because Joseph was in Potiphar's house, the Bible says the Lord blessed Potiphar because Joseph was in his house. And I think what God's saying here is that by you staying in a relationship with your unbelieving spouse, even though it's annoying and difficult and you feel like it's going to affect the kids, you do that because it brings a potential blessing. It brings them a greater opportunity that they might come to know the Lord. Now, I don't know what he means when he says, if not, your children are unclean. I don't think he means here they're, 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 they're definitely going to go to hell, okay? But now they're set apart. So those of you who have an unbelieving spouse, it's difficult. Maybe you're here today and you are that unbelieving spouse, right? Or maybe you're listening and you are that unbelieving spouse. Or maybe those of you who are listening have that unbelieving spouse and maybe they would listen to the word of God for a moment. If you are an unbeliever and your spouse is a believer, I would not want to be you on judgment day if you reject Christ because you have an enormous opportunity to see Jesus. And the greater your revelation that you reject, the greater your condemnation. But those of you who are married to an unbeliever, 1 Peter 3 says you can win them without a word as they, as they observe your godly behavior. As you try to be patient and show them love that they don't deserve. Forgive them. Endure their mockery. And unless they're putting you in spiritual danger or physical danger, that sometimes we do this for the sake of the gospel. So look what Paul says. If the unbelieving one leaves, verse 15, let him leave. You're not under bondage in such cases. God has called us to peace. Now, careful here. If they want to leave, let them leave. Don't drive them out by, by making their life miserable. I'm not cooking for you. You're not a Christian. You can eat in the other room, right? I'm not 
I'm, no, I'm not going to stay home and watch a movie with you. I'm going to Bible study. Yeah, well, you go to Bible study every night. Yeah, that's right. You should try it, right? Well, wait a minute. So as best we can, we're trying to bring them to Christ. So what does Paul mean when he says, if your unbelieving spouse leaves, you're not under bondage? I think he's permitting divorce here. But is he permitting remarriage? Or one commentary I read, he says, he's not even permitting divorce. He goes, you're just not under the the burden of having to provide for and fulfill your marital covenant responsibilities, but you're still married to that person. However, my, my opinion would be is if your unsaved spouse leaves you, it's permissible to divorce, to divorce them, and I believe you're free to remarry. But God knows your heart, whether you're trying to get rid of them or they voluntarily said, you're just weird and I don't want to be with you anymore. So... <sighs> Divorce that's not biblical is not permissible. Separation should aim toward reconciliation. Even unequal marriages should be permanent because they have saving potential. Look at verse 16. How do you know, O wife, whether you will save your husband? How do you know, O husband, whether you will save your wife? Tuck this in the back of your mind. The next time you hear a young Christian say, we saved two people today, before you flog them with theology and say, you didn't save anything. Anybody, Jesus saves. Nobody told Paul that because twice in this book, he speaks from a human standpoint. He goes, I do all things. I become all things to all men that I might save them. Paul says, you might save your spouse or your kids. I get it. Theologically, we don't save anybody. But, but if God uses you to bring them to Christ, that, that you could sort of say here, you save them. And so Paul's point is, how do you know The reason you should stay in your difficult, unequal marriage is because it has saving potential. But now Paul turns the corner and he leaves marriage. And you're like, Paul, this is your book on marriage. Why are you going to leave marriage? So we're going to come to 17 to 24. This is the last section. And, and, And interestingly, he doesn't talk about changing your marital status. He goes, by the way, let's talk about your social status and your religious status. I'm making the same point over and over again. Don't get preoccupied with changing your status. It's not going to make you happy. So as I said in the beginning, our focus shouldn't be on on changing our status, but cheerful service. So look at verse 17. He says, only as the Lord has assigned to each one as God has called each one, in this manner let him walk. What does he mean by that? In other words, he's going to say, bloom where you're planted. So the first thing he's going to talk about is how some people want to improve their religious status. Why would you want to improve your religious status? Because you would faultily believe that this would find favor with God. So in the first century, the Jews were told that the way to please God is to get circumcised. And so the Gentiles are kind of coming into this at the first time. They're like, well, I want God to like me more. I'm going to get circumcised. And Paul goes, that's not going to prove your religious status. So the first thing I want you to see here is that in Christ, we can't and don't need to improve our religious status. It can't get any better. (laughs) In Christ, we have redemption, righteousness, sanctification. We have the whole package. There's no upgrade. He's the top of of the chain. 
I am in Christ. So Paul goes, don't try to improve your religious status. Verse 18, was any man called uncircumcised? Don't become uncircumcised. Has anyone been called circumcision? Let him not be circumcised. Circumcision is nothing. Uncircumcision is nothing. What matters is keeping God's commandments. Remain in the condition you were called. In other words, don't try to improve your religious status. You want God to, you want to find God's favor? Don't try to do something. Just fall on your knees and and give your life to Christ and trust in Jesus and enjoy this new status of being fully forgiven and dwelled by the Spirit, born again, a new creature, saved by grace. But then secondly, he says, and by the way, don't be preoccupied with improving your social status. Now, interestingly, I remember reading this. In some cultures, there is no opportunity to produce or to improve your social status. Like in, in, in certain areas of India, if you're in the caste system, there are no Jeffersons. So notice how he speaks about, well, what do you mean by your social status? He goes, well, were you called while a slave? Are you a slave? Yeah, and I don't like it. And I'm upgrading. Paul goes, don't worry about it. However, if you're able to become free, do that. And you're like, how do you do that? Well, in the first century, it wasn't like this brutal, barbaric, wicked slavery that we practice in America where oppressing Africans, Right? But in the first century, you could buy your freedom. If you had enough money you saved up, you could purchase your freedom. Paul goes, great, if you're able to do it, do it. But it's not a big deal. Don't be preoccupied with changing your status. And so for those of you who are free, he has this cute little twist. He goes, you're a slave. And for those of you who are a slave, you're, you're free. So don't worry about your, your social status. Look what he says. He says, if you were called while a slave, you're the Lord's freedmen. And if you were called by while you're free, you're Christ's slave. And then, this sounds like deja vu from Pastor John. You were bought with a price. Don't become slaves of men. Let each man remain with God in that condition with which he was called. Again, it took me quite a while to go, what in the world? We're talking about marriage here. The next verse is going to be about getting married again. Where is he going with this? Well, the big theme here is this. Don't focus on changing your status, but on cheerful service. So let me close with a very, very specific way to think about this passage. This is not primarily a passage about marriage, though it has some wonderful insights. It's about blooming where you're planted. It's about beating down this lie that somehow if I change my status, I will be happy. God will be more pleased with me or I will be more happy. Trust me, trading for another spouse will not make you happy. If you're single, I promise you, getting married will not be the, the source of your greatest happiness. You're not even ready to be married because you're going to suck the life out of that person because they cannot completely fulfill you. Only Christ can. And so in closing, I want to go back to two things that Paul says here. Don't change your status, but our redemption should move us to cheerful service. You go, yeah, I heard you say that a couple times. Where'd you get that from, Tom? We'll go back carefully to verse 19. He goes, your status isn't what matters. What matters is keeping the commandments of God. You say, well, then, Pastor, why don't you say, don't change your status? Be obedient. Because that's not what a relationship with God is supposed to look like. If you're a Christian, our Christian life should not be like, I need to do what God says. It should be grateful service. I love you, Jesus, because you first loved me. You have bought me with a price. I don't belong to myself. 
And so it's important that we see here that Paul's going, don't be preoccupied with changing your status. Be preoccupied with grateful service, fueled by the grace of God. Live for Jesus. Not because you hope to get to heaven, because you're already there. And you're not your own. What a beautiful way to end this whole thing. He goes, why are you all thinking you're going to be happy if you're free or slave or if you're married or unmarried? If you're there? At the end of the day, what matters is he's going to go on to say, the time is short. Jesus is coming. It doesn't matter whether you get a new car, a new house, a new wife. What matters is people. Souls. The gospel. Walking with Jesus in a culture where that's hard to find. And so as we close today, what a sobering reminder that my happiness is not in my career. Even as a pastor, my happiness is not, oh, how big's your church? But that our happiness is found in living for life, our life for Christ. And each day getting out of bed and saying, Jesus, what will you have me to do? How do you want to use my hands and feet today to glorify God in my body? And I can tell you this, the focus in this chapter is on winning people to Christ. And where does that start? The people in your closest sphere. So let's take this analogy. If Paul's telling us to bloom with you, where you're planted, where are you planted? Where are you planted? Where's your farmland where God goes? You sow seeds here. Did you know that 80% of people who come to Christ come through friends and family members? Stop worrying about witnessing to the guy on the train and worry about your neighbors and your friends and the people you work with and Uncle Barry who gets on your nerves and start falling on your knees and asking God, give me an opportunity to talk to this person about Christ. Pray for your grandkids, your, your nieces and nephews. People we know, people we pass by day by day, that person you get your coffee from every morning, that's a person for whom Christ died. And you may be that connecting point. It's not, let's bring them to church so Pastor Tom can, bring them to church so Pastor Tom can preach to them. But you don't need to do that. Love them, have them into your house. In a few weeks, Paul's going to tell us, do all things for all men. What a glory to God when there's a church full of people who go, I belong to Jesus. I'm not going to waste my time trying to just stockpile my stuff and improve my status. But I'm going to live my life for Christ. Amen. This is exciting, right? It's convicting, but it's exciting. So let's, let's commit this to the Lord. Father, this has been a, a very heavy, weighty section and one which we must approach with caution. For I realize that there is much personal pain in, the peop- in, in, the, in our flock due to marriage, due to sexual issues. And so, Father, I pray that the Jehovah Rapha, you, O oh God, will speak healing, but also speak repentance to those who have stubbornly said, it's my body. If we belong to Christ, may we be reminded we're not our own. Thank you for redeeming us in the blood. Help us to improve our walk with Christ, to focus on loving others and living for you and our personal time of enjoying our Lord Jesus. And then, Lord, let that overflow into amazing fruit as we see men and women, boys and girls, giving their life to Christ. 
May the baptism pools at Riverstone Church be splashing like living water because people are being drawn to Christ. And may God be glorified in this. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.